Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. These programs are based on the ministry of Witness Lee and his 21-year-long crowning work, The Life Study of the Bible. We'll include excerpts from his spoken ministry, which focuses on the enjoyment of Christ as the divine life as revealed in the Bible. We hope that through these studies you'll be brought into a deeper enjoyment of the Scriptures and of our dear and precious Lord Jesus. You can contact us by sending email to radio at lsm.org or reach us toll-free, 888-LIFE-STUDY. Now, let's join today's program. Paul, the great apostle of the New Testament, experienced many life-threatening situations as he journeyed to the remote parts of Asia and Europe, announcing the gospel of Christ. But none of those situations compared with what he encountered on his final trip to Jerusalem, the religious capital at the time and the home of the first and largest church. Stay with us for a rich and enlightening life study of the Bible today with Witness Lee, a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry. Once again today we'll bring you recorded portions from the ministry of Witness Lee from his 1984 life study of the book of Acts. With us again today is Francis Ball as we once more consider the crucial matters presented in Acts. Francis, welcome back. We're happy to have you as always. I'm always happy to be here, Chris. Thank you. Francis, the leading ones in the church in Jerusalem took opportunity to boast to the Apostle Paul of the tens of thousands that believed in Christ in that city. And no doubt the Apostle praised God for each one of them, genuine believers, joint heirs of the promise. But their continued involvement with and practice of the Jewish laws and customs betrayed their lack of vision. To use the language that we have brought out repeatedly on this broadcast, they were not yet fully able to make the dispensational transfer that God was bringing forth in the book of Acts. We're going to be on this topic once again today, Francis. Before we go on, define once more what we mean by this term, the dispensational transfer. Well, a dispensational transfer simply means, in a broad sense, that we're transferred out of the Old Testament economy into God's New Testament economy. At the time of the incarnation, human living, death and resurrection of Christ, another dispensation came into existence. And it's necessary we be transferred out of the old dispensation of the law into the new dispensation of Christ as life, the dispensation of grace, if you like. But we need a thorough transfer, and we're in the midst of that transfer here in Acts. As we join Witness Lee today, he's going to touch a passage that's somewhat familiar from the Gospel of Matthew. I think maybe we should read this portion for the sake of our listeners. This is Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain privately. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shined like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you are willing, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, 
the Beloved, in whom I have found my delight. Hear him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were greatly frightened. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Well, Francis, we're going to hear Witness Lee connect this passage from Matthew to the situation in Acts 22. This is a marvelous portion. Let's join Witness Lee. I'd like to uh, spend some time concerning the transfer out of the Old Testament economy into the New. Firstly, consider Peter. Why Peter could or would forget about that vision on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, James was insisting to keep the Old Testament economy going along with the New Testament economy. Peter was knowledgeable concerning the disappearing of the Old Testament economy. He saw this. Why he didn't rise up to tell James, but James, let me tell you what I saw on the Mount Transfiguration. Moses, Elijah, were all over. We shouldn't still hold on to that Old Testament economy. This is something against God's move, God's economy. And John was there also. John should do something. In chapter 21, as we have seen, when Paul paid his last visit to Jerusalem, only James' name is mentioned here. Where was Peter? Where was John? Where was James? The three who were there on the Mount Transfiguration. The three all there, but why when that kind of mixture was happening, these dear three were so silent. They didn't do anything to reduce the mixture in Jerusalem. It seems only Paul was the one who bore the burden about this matter. It is altogether not too much to say that since Acts 15, this bothering was deeply there in Paul's spirit. In his second journey, he couldn't forget Jerusalem. He purposed in his spirit to go back to Jerusalem, not just to bear the burden to pass on all the arms, the financial help from gender believers to help those in Judea. What actually was on the heart and in the spirit of Paul was this concern. Oh, a terrible situation there at the source of the Lord's move on this earth. And that source to Paul's realization, has been fully poisoned. So he had no peace to go on. Rather, he would return to the source to clear the source up. Then he would go further to Siron and to Spain. And he went back eventually, trying the best, but he didn't get the chance. Rather, the door was so strongly closed. And all came up to press him into that situation. And he had no way 
you took it. But the Lord didn't tolerate. Francis, the words in verse 8 of Matthew 17, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone, had to be burning in Peter as he held his tongue in the presence of James and the others. Paul had good cause to be concerned about the potential of this poison coming from Jerusalem and how it might affect the Lord's work everywhere. This was a real cause of concern, wasn't it, Francis? It certainly was, and that's quite interesting you read those verses from Matthew because uh, there I was noticing, he said, while he was still speaking, uh, this bright cloud came. And it seems like today even, while we're speaking of things concerning the old covenant, we're really being turned back to that way and losing sight of what was taking place there on that mountain, commonly called the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Lord Jesus was transfigured there before their eyes and Moses and Elijah showed up with them. And then they just seemed to have lost that. Both Peter and John were there, but neither one of them could boldly lift up their voice and make it clear that we're in another age, we're in another dispensation, and that now the thing is with Jesus only. I think the poison here is just a matter of mixture. You know, earlier in the book of Acts, there was a conference where they were dealing with the fact that some of the Judaizers were going to the Gentiles and insisting that they practice the practices of the Old Testament, circumcision and diet and that sort of thing. And they made a decision at that time not to put any kind of demands on the Gentiles that were hearing the gospel, but they still compromised. Now, it comes up again, and this time it's quite serious. So there is the danger of the poison of this mixture of Judaism, certain kind of ceremonies, certain kind of requirements on the Jews, and they were seeking to enforce this upon the Gentiles or to prohibit the gospel even going to the Gentiles. They were absolutely neglecting the fact that the Lord Jesus had commissioned them that this gospel should go to the whole world. So it's a poison to try to bring in the Old Testament and the Old Dispensation practices into a New Testament dispensation. Francis, let me ask you a little follow-up. We don't see too many New Testament believers today practicing specifically these Jewish things, but what are the elements today that could comprise a kind of comparable poison? You know, a lot of people read the New Testament like it's the Old Testament. And actually, we should read the Old Testament like it's the New Testament. So we like to uh, just point out that to bring in any kind of old practices of our old religion, they're not according to Christ as life. They're according to practices of good and evil. In the New Covenant, it's a matter of God dispensing himself in Christ as the Spirit into his believers. And when you bring in a lot of rules, regulations, trying to heal the nation's problems. This is not God's New Testament economy. God's New Testament economy is to dispense himself, his very life and nature, into his believers. Well, Francis, the one who was used most prominently in the New Testament to open up his economy, the Apostle Paul, is about to step into a trap where he himself could do something to jeopardize this economy. We're going to see the Lord's reaction. Let's go back to Witness Lee. In a simple word, Paul, according to his writing in Galatians and Romans, shouldn't go back to the temple. 
this Nasser vow with offerings was not an ordinary practice among the Jews. It was a particular, special, extraordinary vow offerings. Now here to the end, until the offering was offered by the priest. It's terrible. Could you believe that the Apostle Paul would go back to the temple and to ask for the priest to offer some sacrifices to God for him? No wonder up to this point the law would not tolerate. Paul, what are you doing here? I like to bring up the entire situation. Since it's not a small thing for such an apostle after writing Romans to go back to the temple to join himself with the Nazarite bars and to get purified with them and to enter the temple with them and to stay in the temple with them for six days waiting for the priest to come to offer the sacrifices for him. Could you see the Lord Sarenheim? On the one hand, Paul was faithful. Paul was willing to sacrifice, to ridden the risk of his life for the Lord's name. But on the other hand, Paul was still Saul of Tarsus. He couldn't help himself. But apart from Paul, where could the Lord get one more faithful than he? The Lord came in to rescue him firstly from that mixture. And then from the hand of the Jewish plotters. And then thirdly put him into the prison at Rome. Separating him from all kinds of disturbances, botherings, and so forth. Giving them a tranquil time that he could write his last epistle. And I do believe these four epistles of the last eight, Hebrews, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, were written while he was the first time in Rome in prison. Then after he was released, he wrote the last four, two Timothys, one Titus, one Philemon. Francis faced with severe pressure from the brothers in Jerusalem. Paul agrees to their suggestion and joins others in a public vow in the temple. The Lord Jesus reacted very strongly. Comment on these three things that Witness Lee mentioned. His intolerance, his sovereignty, and his sympathy. Paul had received a lot of revelation by this time. And he went back to Jerusalem. Here he steps into a situation He's taking this really as a very serious, more or less a command by James and the elders there in Jerusalem to take a vow, an Old Testament vow, with four young men who had made a vow very much in accordance with what we call the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6 and the Old Dispensation. Now, Paul has already seen a lot of light that the old things are passed away. This is the age of Jesus Christ. 
And this is the revelation that Paul received. He wrote Romans, he wrote Galatians, standing firmly against the old covenant practices and the old covenant concept and was bringing everyone into this new covenant enjoyment of Christ. But here he gets caught into a situation. If he doesn't take heed to James's strong recommendation, then he will end up causing a lot of trouble there in their oneness. So he goes to take this vow, and it involves him in something of the old covenant way, which God has given up and is against. But God is very patient. He comes in at the time that Paul is waiting for the completion of that vow and allows a big disturbance to come in. So you could say that's his sovereign way of handling this problem. He's intolerant of the practice, but he sends in a disturbance in his sovereignty that rescues Paul out of that kind of dilemma. And he shows Paul a lot of sympathetic understanding of how he got into that situation. But nevertheless, he would not tolerate Paul, his choice vessel, to be swept away in this kind of poisonous situation. Well, of course, he's also protecting the testimony of this marvelous revelation of his New Testament economy. That's the main thing. Let's go back, Francis. We have one more section from Witness Lee and a little deeper look at the Apostle Paul and what awaited him following this kind of riotous situation. Now, let's look into these four epistles, Hebrew, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Hebrew chapter 1 tells us he is God, and the chapter 2 tells us he is a man. Such a God-man, he was superior than angels, which was the second item of Judaism. God, then the angels. Then Paul tells the Jews that this God-man is superior than Moses. His covenant is much, much superior to the old covenant. And his sacrifice is superior to the old sacrifice. Due to this, the old covenant was over, and all the old sacrifices were over. Well, by reading Hebrews, we have seen a clear picture showing us all the Old Testament things were over. Now, what is remaining in the New Testament economy but Jesus Christ? He is the all-inclusive one. Then, in the book of Ephesians, he told us that we all need, not only Jewish believers, even we Gentiles, we all need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to see God's calling that issues in the church which is the fullness of the one who fills all in all. That is the body of Christ in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Then chapter 2, Paul tells us that ordinances, Sabbaths, circumcision, the dietary eating, these kind of things were all abolished by the death of Christ on the cross to make the Jew and the Gentiles, one new man in himself. Then in chapter 3, Paul begins to tell us that uh, the riches of Christ 
have to be the very constituents of the church life. That we all have to have Christ making his home deep in our hearts that we may be filled unto all the fullness of the triune God to be his full expression. Then we come to Philippians. Just in chapter 3, Paul told us he was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Yet, he gave up all the things for gaining Christ. He counted all the Jewish things, all the things in the Old Testament as done for gaining Christ. Christ had to be everything. He was pursuing Christ that he may live a life to be found fully in Christ. Then in Colossians, he tells us that Christ is everything. Christ is the image of God. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ, the firstborn from among the dead. Christ, the portion God given to the saint. Christ, the mystery of God. Christ, its embodiment of the Godhead. Christ is our life. Christ is everything that is real to us. Well, these four books, you put them together, you could see in the eyes of such an enlightened one, nothing but Christ. But what he saw and what he fixed in his last two or three visits to Jerusalem was absolutely a mixture. A mixture little with Christ, much more with the old has me come. Well, Francis, a lot is happening in this section. Paul now is sovereignly placed in custody for two years. And out of that come these four crucial epistles unveiling the all-inclusive Christ. What about these books, Francis, of Hebrews, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? What sets them apart? Well, if it hadn't been for this opportunity that the Lord gave him in his uh, sovereignty to be in a prison where he could have a quiet time, to write these epistles, we would be missing very, very much in this age. Hebrews really is to bring out and point out the superiority of Christ himself to everything of the old dispensation. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to everything of the old covenant. Ephesians just shows you all the riches of Christ, what he is and what he is to his body, that is, the church. And in Philippians, you see Christ as such a worthy one. He's worth everything. He's worth counting everything else that you might have experienced religiously or worldly or any other way just as absolutely worthless compared to the experience of Christ and the knowledge of Christ. And then, of course, Colossians really emphasizes the all-inclusiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything. He's the center. He's the circumference. He's everything. He's all that we need, and he's everything to every believer in his daily life, in his church life, in his hopes, in everything. The Lord Jesus Christ is our all in all. And there's no difference in that book between Jew and Gentile. 
So you see, the whole thing wraps up into one body, both Jew and Gentile. Ephesians, he showed a new man. In Colossians, he also refers to this new man. And this new man is the church with the head and the body, Christ and the church. The vision, the revelation from these books is really unsurpassed in all of Scripture, Francis. You pointed out these items very well. Let me ask you quickly, how would you gauge the level of this vision or the appreciation of this vision in the body of Christ today regarding this all-surpassing Christ? Well, Chris, you know that after this revelation came and was made so clear, the beginning of the church in uh, Jerusalem was a marvelous, pure beginning. But it uh, it became, in this kind of problem we just covered today, uh, a real poison. And eventually there was a degradation in the church. So that even after the writing of these books, the ones we mentioned, uh, Hebrews, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, we mentioned these books, we have such a clear view of what God's intent is, what this dispensation is for, to dispense the life-giving spirit into his believers and to make them into one body. But that vision was lost. Before the end of the first century, there was a real degradation. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, you have seven churches mentioned in every church, except the church in Philadelphia and even the church in Smyrna didn't have much negative said. But there has been a degradation in the church so that people lost this view that was presented by the apostle. So today we're in this kind of situation that so many don't really realize what is the church to God? What is God doing to build up a church that he calls his own body? This view is really needed today. Francis, we frequently use the term recovery in this program. We talk about the recovery version, God's recovery. I think what you've summarized for us today is is really the essence of the recovery that we're talking about, the recovery back to this view, this valuation of our wonderful, marvelous Christ and what he is accomplishing on the earth today. When I first heard the word recovery in my Christian life after I'd been saved for over 20 years, my response was, we do need that. We need a recovery. I believe this is a cry in the hearts of many, many Christians. Francis, I really appreciate your fellowship and being here today. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to come. For Francis Ball today, I'm Chris Wilde, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. Witness Lee spent seven decades in the 20th century speaking Christ, first in Asia, and then North America, eventually all over the world. The culmination of those 70 years of ministry was his Life Study of the Bible, an exhaustive exposition of the entire scriptures. This unique commentary focuses on how Christ can be life to man, in an experiential and practical way. These programs encapsulate Witnessly speaking in just 26 minutes. But to get the complete riches, visit lifestudy.com. From there you can read all of the Life Study messages in their entirety, 
or download any of our more than 1,700 audio programs at no cost. Again, that website is lifestudy.com. Thanks for listening.